following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. Uh, reading Psalm 31, verses 1 to 4 and fifteen sixteen. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that's hidden for me, for you are my refuge. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. All right, this is from John. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across, across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they asked him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again Peter denied it. And at that moment, the cock crowed. So, uh, I had a friend who lived on my street when I was a kid. I was probably about fifth grade at the time of this story. And uh, this friend of mine, I, looking back, I should have known that it was a friendship of convenience for him. Because we lived on a dead-end street in a dead-end town. <laughs> And we were the only people within half a mile who were in fifth grade at that time. And it was over the summer that he moved in. And 
One of the things that should have tipped me off is that he was extremely cool. <laughs> According to the metrics of 1986 coolness. Right? You know what I mean. Stonewashed denim jacket, spiked hair, heavy metal t-shirt. He was extremely cool, and I was... Oh, I'm trying to think of what the word is. Not. The word is not extremely cool. <laughs> but we got along together. We had fun. We played together like kids. And, and I thought he was my friend until school started. And, and, and we had our first interaction in front of other kids. How many of you just have like a sinking feeling in your stomach? Because you've had this experience too. He didn't pretend he didn't know me. I wish he had pretended he didn't know me. Because what he did instead was no, he made it clear that he knew me. He knew a whole list of ways that I was a very uncool dork. That's a 1986 term for the kids in the room. And I felt so betrayed. I, I, I have stories that I could have told you. I chose to choose the one that was, quote-unquote, just a story from my childhood, as if that makes it any less of a wound that I carry forward into adulthood. But I didn't choose to share anything like that that may have happened more recently. I want to ask you to think about a moment in your life that might be painful to think about, might be one that you have buried way down deep and haven't dug up for a while because it's easier and less painful if you don't think about that moment in your life, a time when someone who you considered a friend let you down. This could be as simple as a time that they really disappointed you about something that mattered a whole lot. It could be a time that they stabbed you in the back. It could be a time when, as happened to me, someone acted one way when you were together alone and a different way when you were together in front of other people. We're resuming our way through the Gospel of John here in John chapter 18 this, this week. And uh, if you didn't notice, as Scott was reading that text, it jumps around a little bit. You, we had the first 11 verses, and then it skipped ahead for several. We had a few more, and then it skipped ahead again, and we had a few more. The reason for that is that chapter 18 contains what I would look at as a two-part story, and I'm going to talk about one this week and one next week. So both weeks, the text is going to jump around a little bit. And in, in, in next, week, <laughs> next week is the story of Jesus' trial or trials, I should say. It's actually plural. He has two types of trials, one before the religious court and one before the civil court. So today, I'm talking about the more interpersonal problems that Jesus had leading up to the crucifixion, which is that there's two individuals in this chapter who he would have considered his friends who let him down. Who failed him. First of all, Judas, who betrayed him, who sold him out to people who wanted to kill him. Judas, whose name has become synonymous with betrayal. And then Peter, who only looks good when compared with Judas. 
right? Because he had talked such a big game. Um, if you know the story of the Gospels, you, you, these character types sort of emerge, and Peter is the one who's always the first on the scene, always the first one to stick up for Jesus, always the one who most, in the most loud voice says, I will never let you down. I'll follow you to the gates of hell. You could be forgiven for not remembering this because we talked about it in our uh, John sermon uh, in July of 2016, (laughs) right? But Jesus had predicted these betrayals. He had predicted that Judas would uh, betray him and that Peter would deny him. All of this happened in John 13. We're now in John chapter 18, so think about where you were in, in July of 2016, right? We were like four months away from having elected the first woman president. And then we... See, the thing you have to know about John 13 through 18 is that it all takes place in one day. Even though it's taken us six years almost to get through it, it all takes place on the same day, basically. Um, and it's mostly Jesus talking to his disciples, giving them like kind of their last teachings, asking them challenging questions and receiving their answers and then saying, huh, that's what you say now. There's this verse in the New Testament um, that's used in a lot of sermons in a certain way. I want to talk about that a little bit because I think this story from John 18 gives us a, I hope it's a better way of thinking about that verse that's used in other types of sermons than this sermon, right? So how many of you heard the phrase, Jesus bore our sins on the cross? That comes from the Bible. And so a pastor always has to be careful when they... When they um, Say like, you know, I don't want you to think about that phrase that way. Because the answer could always be, well, it's in the Bible. right? Yes, it's in the Bible. But we have to do a little bit of work with the stuff in the Bible before it begins to make sense to us, before it kind of permeates our being and gives us meaning. So it comes from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And what the whole verse says is, uh, speaking of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. I'm going to say that part again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then he goes on to say, so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And by the way, that last phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew Bible. You wouldn't necessarily know that, but the people who heard the letter the first time would have recognized that instantly. I want to talk for a bit about what it means that Jesus bore our sins in his body. Because we all, um, even if you're not a religious person and didn't grow up in church like I did, we all live in a, a very Christian-y culture, and we've all kind of been exposed to this idea, which is how to explain it. Well, one thing you could do is you could do a Google image search for Jesus bore our sins. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Um, I did that this week. I'm not quite sure why. But one of the images that came up to be very helpful to me, uh, I should say, It's helpful for my sermon. I don't think it's helpful theologically, but it's very helpful for me to illustrate what I'm trying to say to you in the next few minutes. It was a picture of a little boy, I would say seven or eight years old, 
carrying a gigantic boulder. I don't know if this kid had superhuman strength or what. It's a metaphor, perhaps. He's got a giant boulder, and he's carrying it on his shoulder. It's a two-panel little cartoon thing. And in the next panel, it's Jesus on the cross with that exact same boulder on his shoulders. And between the two boulders is an arrow. Right? And it says underneath it, he bore our sins in his body. The implication of that image is that what it means for Jesus to bear his sins in our body is that whatever exact, precise sins that seven-year-old boy had committed were so awful that they were deserving of a hideous, painful, excruciating, drawn-out death in public. And so Jesus took that on himself instead of having the little boy have to be punished in that way. I don't know about you, but I find that extremely problematic. What I think it means when we say, and I say, and I quote scripture to say that Jesus bore our sins in his body is that it's the sins of humanity that put him on that cross, quite literally. So when I get to next week and I talk to you about these two sham trials, one of them put on by the, it's not a church, but by the religious institution, and one of them put on by the civic institution, that sermon, by the way, is entitled Church and State. Don't go kayaking on that day either. When I tell you about those two sham trials, I'm going to tell you that the sins of these two corrupt institutions, religion and empire, sinned their sin right into Jesus' body and put him on that cross and killed him. That's one way of thinking about Jesus bore our sins in his body. But there's a more personal level way of understanding it too, and that's what today is about. That's what betrayal and denial remind us of. That's what these stories of Judas selling Jesus out and Peter pretending he never even knew him mean, because those are sins that put Jesus on the cross as well. Jesus bore the sins, specifically of Judas and of Peter. But what type of sins are those? Those are the sins of the betrayal of a friend. And all of us have felt that wound. And Jesus bore those sins in his body on the cross too. So this may seem like a subtle shift in in understanding for you right now. And it did to me at first too. I need you to know that it has become one of the most cataclysmic shifts in my theology over the last decade. And I, I can't help but try to pass it on to you, which is that it is not a question of substitution, what Jesus does on the cross. It's not that that little seven-year-old kid has a giant boulder and he's destined for that kind of punishment and Jesus steps in and takes that same sin and that same punishment on himself. That would be a substitution, an exchange. But rather, it's about identification. Jesus, on the cross, identifies with every single one of us who has ever been betrayed by a friend. So when I was fifth grade, with my mouth gaping open at what the person who I thought my friend had just done to me, and being very religious, I was probably already 
every night preoccupied with the, the, the eternal punishment I needed to try to avoid by substituting my boulder up onto Jesus' shoulder, I wish someone had said to me, don't worry about the boulder so much. Look at Jesus on the cross who was just betrayed by his friends the way you were. And know that you are not alone, that the God of the universe embodied in the person of Jesus has experienced that kind of pain. Jesus goes on to identify with the actual criminals next to him. Now, I'm not saying they deserved crucifixion. I'm not in favor of capital punishment, let alone that type. But they were actual convicted criminals who had committed a crime, and Jesus is hanging there next to them, and he identifies with them too. And Jesus even manages somehow to identify with his accusers who had convicted him, who had put him up there on that cross. Think less about a substitution and more about an identification. And the flip side of this, and this is incredibly powerful, and I am still trying to just grasp some little handhold in the, in the enormous theological statement that this is about to be. Because it's not just that uh, God identifies with us in Jesus. It's that through Jesus, we identify with God as well. The Eastern Christian Church is very good at this. The Western Christian Church, including all of Protestantism, is not good at this part of it. We are still trying to learn it. But we identify with God and with Jesus in the eventual resurrection, in the conquering of death. We identify with Jesus' divinity because when when we see in Jesus the fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity in one person, that means we are seeing God in a human being and we as human beings can begin to imagine that we might see God in ourselves. Which, if you were raised to think that the, the only spiritual being that's ever present in you is the devil, is an incredible flipping of the script. Because you are holy and you are divine. Because you are human. So, this whole story from uh, John 18, the parts of it that we read today, it's... it's It's a remarkable opportunity to see in in the betrayal and denial and crucifixion and and, and the resurrection that comes later in the story. It's, It's an opportunity for us to know that God is with us and we are with God. But this set of experiences that's presented in the gospel here is not just an opportunity for solidarity. It is also a challenge for us to imagine occasions of a friend betraying and denying a friend in which we are not the ones being betrayed and denied, but we ourselves are the betrayers and the deniers. And in this way, the cross is a mirror that Jesus holds up to us and says, look at what you are capable of. See, I told you earlier to win your sympathies about the time when my I thought was a friend turned out not to be a friend 
and betrayed me in front of other people at school and shamed me and abased me. Did it work? Did I win your sympathies? I I chose not to lead with the story of me doing the exact same thing to somebody else. And I asked you to think about a time when you had been betrayed by a friend so that you could win your own sympathies for a minute. I hope it worked because now I'm about to tell you to imagine a time when you turned it around on somebody else. This is what we do when a wound is inflicted on us. We inflict it on somebody else. And what we all want to do, I think, is to focus on the first way of understanding the story. Oh, it would be so nice if we could just do that part, that if we could just remember that in Jesus we have God in the flesh standing with us as the world beats on us and bruises us and abuses us. I will just say it one time. If that is truly what you need today, then Jesus offers it to you. Rest in him. But what we all need to be able and willing eventually to do is to see ourselves in, not just in Jesus, but in his accusers and in his betrayer and in the one who denied him. Because when Jesus took on the sins of the world in his body, that includes ours. And you don't have to be You don't have to think it's like whatever little tiny sin a seven-year-old committed deserves crucifixion in order to recognize the fact that when Jesus takes the sins of the world into his body, we are guilty of those same sins. And next week I'm going to talk to you about how we're guilty of the systemic and institutionalized corruption of religion and empire. Today I'm talking to you about how we are guilty of these individual relational sins. When he took on the sins of the world, it includes ours. When he named those sins in advance, warning that it was going to happen, that's a warning for us too, both our past selves and our present day selves. And when he received that punishment in his body and responded in love, that love was for us too. And when he, with his arms outstretched, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing and offered forgiveness to the very people who were killing him. That was not just a model for us when we are the recipients of betrayal and denial. But it was a forgiveness of us when we're guilty of betrayal and denial. And guess what? When he was raised to new life, that is for us too. But the way that this seems to work is that we don't seem to have the capacity to access the full benefits of God's love and grace until we become willing to humble ourselves enough to admit that it isn't just those people over there who need it, but that we need it too. I don't do altar calls. Except that I kind of do an altar call every week. 
What I mean to say, if you're blessedly not aware of what that phrase means, is that I don't ask people to come forward after I preach a sermon up to the altar to kneel down and publicly profess Jesus and their faith in him for the first time. But I do ask people, I ask everyone to come forward every week to this table to receive the grace and forgiveness and sustenance that Jesus offers by taking Holy Communion together. Today is no exception. I'm going to invite you to come and take communion together. But I do want to add a little bit of an altar call idea to it. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do anything publicly that you don't feel comfortable doing. I'm actually not going to ask you to do anything publicly at all. But if you'd like to, be my guest. This is what I want to ask you to do as you come to this table today that that I don't always ask you to do. If you right now are feeling that pit in your stomach, not the one from earlier where you remember a time when you were betrayed, but the one from right now and a few minutes ago when you went, "Uh uh-oh, I am the betrayer. If you have that feeling right now in your body that you actually do need Jesus just as much as those other people do. If you're having a little like conversion moment right there in your seat, <laughs> whether it's like one of those brand new first-time conversion moments or, or whether it's a renewal of something or an elaboration of something that happened in your life a long time ago, if that describes you in any way, this can be a moment for you to experience communion a little bit differently because this is... This is what I want you to do. We, we, we so often talk about this table and say, in an effort to be very invitational and inclusive, if Jesus had set down a meal on a table and invited you to come to his dining room to have dinner with him, and you would say yes to that, then this is for you. That's still true. It's always true. I'm never going to retract that. But remember that this is a representation of the Last Supper when he was sitting around the table with friends and with people who th- he thought were his friends. And remember that Judas and Peter were sitting around that table with him as well. And so you might want to imagine yourself today at the table with Jesus, not as one of the good disciples, uh, as John calls himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the one who is known to the high priest. Not as one of the good ones, none of them are all that good, but but as one of the ones who's very obviously bad in this story. You can imagine yourself coming to the table with Jesus and receiving the forgiveness that he extends to all people for sinning the sins of the world into his body on the cross. And you could choose this moment to repent, which is a very churchy word. It's also a biblical word, but in the biblical context, it simply means to change your mind. And if you've had a spiritual changing of the mind today, That's called repentance, and you can take communion as you repent, and that's one of the most beautiful things I could possibly imagine. As always, if you're not comfortable coming to the table and receiving communion, if you're you're here as as an observer less than as a participant, we are so happy for you to be part of what we did today, and you don't have to come and take communion, but you're certainly welcome. We're all going to have a different response to the words of John's gospel today. And I'm inviting you to have your response and experience with God together at this communion table uh, or in your seat, whatever it means for you. We're going to sing another song as that happens. And I invite you to come and receive this gift of grace. Amen.
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.